The Bible is filled with a number of confusing and difficult passages to understand. Sometimes there's some disturbing things that can be found in the Bible as well, but today's readings are not in those categories, especially this one we just heard from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. It may be Paul or it may be one of his disciples who, who wrote this letter. At the heart of, the, of this word is that invitation to bear with one another in love. It is simple and clear. Not simplistic, no, simple and clear. Paul wants the folks in Ephesus and the folks in Columbus to understand that bearing with one another in love gives us the ability to deal with anything that we encounter or face in the world as, as we know it. It's an invitation to living life out loud in the name of love. In this invitation, Paul is giving them practical advice. The first three chapters of Ephesians were filled with some pretty dense and difficult theology. Even to this day, I still have to work my way through carefully with commentators and scholars and others to help me understand what he's getting at in those first three chapters. When we get to chapter four, or this chapter here that was just read, chapter four, it's practical advice. It's as though Paul is taking a deep breath and saying, okay, those were some heavy lectures, some heavy thoughts. Now, here's practically what it means. Bear with one another in love. If you can do that, you can take on anything. The best theologians and teachers do that, don't they? There may be a difficult lecture given that's hard to understand, but if you can infuse it with stories and practical advice, it comes to life. I remember hearing Thomas Groom, a brilliant Roman Catholic scholar, uh, several years ago, give a series of lectures that he titled Christian Praxis. They were on the practice of Christianity and what that looks like. Now, like I said, he was a terrific scholar, difficult to understand and difficult to follow at times, but by the time he got to his last lecture, he titled it, if you want to make people Christian, give them something Christian to do. I kind of wish he'd started with that one first. I might have understood more of what he was saying by the time we got to the end. But I, but I love that about it. It was practical advice on how to help people practice their Christian faith. And think about this. I've heard you talk like that as well. I've heard you say after you came back from, from a Mexico trip with our youth ministry, after building homes in the border towns of northern Mexico along the border with California, you've come back and said, now I know what it means to be a Christian. Now I know what it means to put love into action. I've heard you talk this way after you volunteered at Heart to Heart. In fact, some people have said to me directly, when I'm at Heart to Heart at the food pantry volunteering and providing food for hungry people on Tuesdays and Thursdays, sometimes on Wednesdays, I feel like I've been to church. In fact, that's my church, they'll say, and I always like to respond, well, amen and hallelujah. Thank God, you, you understand. It's love in action, it's love made real. It's what happens when we put that kind of love into practice, whether we're serving in some faraway land or across the street, or maybe even simply helping someone in our own home. Bearing with one another in love. Bear with one another in love. A simple and clear understanding of what it means to put our faith into practice. Yesterday, I, I had the pleasure of leading a wedding ceremony for Aaron and, and Steve. Aaron's a member of our church, and her, and her new husband, Steve, were just a, they were just a delight to work with. In, in the homily, I paused for a moment, and I quoted Eugene Peterson, a brilliant biblical scholar. He said, love from the center of who you are 
I said to Aaron and Steve, that's an invitation for you to love each other from the depths of your, your very self, from that person who you truly have been created to be, to love from your heart, to love from your soul, to give yourself, to give that unique person, that unique and marvelous person that God created you to be, to give that to the other and both give and receive that as the finest of gifts. That's what it means to bear with one another in love. It truly is an invitation to be you. Not somebody's projection of what you ought to be, but to simply be you because you were created in love. You know, this is indeed the overarching message of the Bible from the beginning to the end. Oh, as I said, you can find some difficult things. You can find passages that don't make sense and some that are disturbing, frankly, quite disturbing. But if you pay attention to the overarching message from beginning to end, what you encounter over and over again is this invitation to bear with one another in love. Uh, We heard the Shema earlier. That's the, the reading from Deuteronomy 6. Do you know the word Shema in Hebrew? It literally means hear. It's the first word in the text, both in Hebrew and in English. It's also in the imperative. That means there's an exclamation point. We should put one in our, in our reading. There's an exclamation point at that, at that first word. Hear this. Listen. Pay attention. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might. That is your strength. This text is the central verse for all of Judaism. All of Judaism really springs from this single simple yet clear command. Love your God with all your heart, soul, and might, your strength. And by implication, when you love another, when you love your spouse, or your children, or your neighbor, or your friend at church, when you put love into practice, it is as though you are loving God, God's very self with your heart, soul, and mind. Fast forward a few hundred years to the the book of Isaiah. Isaiah dealt with some very difficult issues in Israel during 700 years or so before the time of Jesus. They they had fallen apart in a variety of ways. His messages were sometimes hard to hear. Sometimes they're hard for us to hear because we seem to be similar in many similar ways. But that chapter 43, it's almost like Isaiah took a breath and he said, remember, you are precious in God's sight. You are a delight to God and God loves you. Such a beautiful verse. You are precious and a delight and loved by God. Then go almost to the end of the New Testament to 1 John chapter 4. It's the very first verse I memorized from the Bible in Mrs. Hirschberger's third grade Bible study class. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. Those who love know God. Those who do not love do not know God. For God is love. Do you hear how clear and simple that is? Take whatever theology you have, whether you're on the left or the right, whether you're an uber liberal or an uber fundamentalist, and somewhere in between, take all of that and don't worry about it for the moment because there's simply one truth being taught in this section. If you love... You know God. If you don't, you don't know God. That's not my comment. It's from John's letter to the early church. Everything, everything in our faith moves and centers and has its very being 
in God's love for us and the commandment to us and the call to us to give ourselves away in love. I'll take a breath now, like Isaiah and some of the others, and, and acknowledge that's a lot of Bible for one sermon. I don't normally have four different texts that I quote in a, in a single sermon, but I think it's important every once in a while, maybe once or twice a year, to remind ourselves of the faith that is, is foundational to how we function in this congregation. These truths have been a part of who we are since 1910 when our first, our first uh, congregation gathered over at 1320 uh, Cambridge Boulevard. It's part of who we are. Bearing with one another in love. Practice the unity of the Spirit. Note this. When we bear one another in love, there can be unity among us despite our diversity. Notice this though. Paul says there's one baptism, one Lord, one, one God of all through all and, and creator of all. And, and, and it's, there's unity in that, but not uniformity. Uniformity is a completely different thing where everyone's in lockstep and there's no diversity. Unity means we can have a variety of views and opinions and ideas and still be united through the power of love itself. You know, it's not just the Bible that, that understands this. Secular culture gets it, gets it as well. I mean, think of some of the popular songs that we've known over the years. Back in the 60s, what did the Beatles sing? All you need is love. In the 70s, I'm not ashamed to admit this, in the 70s, my favorite musical group was the Carpenters. Do some of you remember the Carpenters? Some of you are going, why did you like a group of people who build buildings? I, no, there was, a, there was a musical group called the Carpenters. They sang a song called Love is Surrender, one of my favorite songs of all time. The idea of surrender, you must surrender yourself to the other. Give yourself fully to the other in the name of love. Uh, then fast forward to, to, to this time. I, according to my son, Stephen, who's 28, one of the most popular songs at, at weddings and dances and, and receptions afterward is a song by Taylor Swift called Love Story. It's basically a song that retells the tale of Romeo and Juliet. I listened to it for the first time yesterday. You won't be surprised. It's a pretty cool song. Our culture gets it. This isn't something that Christians own. is isn't something that Jews own. It's our culture understands that love is what matters. Love is what binds us allows us to face whatever issues may come at us as a church, as a family, in your business, whatever. It's love that empowers us. It's love that is the fuel in our engine. It drives us down the road. <clears throat> but there are barriers to love. It's simple to understand. It's not easy to practice. A few years ago, a friend of mine, a pastor, decided to leave the ministry. I was very surprised. He's a fine pastor. He, he loves nothing more than uh, exegeting, that's a fancy word for studying, studying a biblical text and then uh, working on interpreting it, inter building it into a message for a Sunday morning or maybe a column for his newsletter. He, he loves being a pastor. He loves being with his people in times of absolute joy, like a, a baptism or a wedding. And he was always honored to be there in times of grief and, and sorrow, to, to be a voice of hope and love and yet now he's walked away completely left the ministry a few days after I learned that I gave him a call and said hey tell, tell me what's going on he said Miles and then he went on a, a, a little bit of a rant about frustrations that most preachers know and experience I won't bother to to repeat those you might even be able to guess what they are he said all those things I said is, is that it is there more he said yeah I just and his voice stopped. 
I don't like conversations where there's silence. Usually I start talking and babbling. This time, I didn't. After another moment or two, he said, I just don't care. I just don't care. Do you remember what Elie Wiesel said? The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. You show me a church that's indifferent. You show me a church that's lost its amen, its, its reason for joy, and I'll show you a church, oh, the pews may be full and the offering plates may be overflowing, but if they've lost their amen, if they've lost their joy, if they've, lost, if they've become indifferent to each other and to the world, that church is already on the steep slope to decline, to, to decay. I just don't care. See, part of the problem is we, we, we think that in order to be united, in order to experience unity, we, we, can't, we can't get into any kind of conflict or discussion or, or, or pushing each other. The problem is when we love, if we love someone deeply, there are going to be moments when there'll be conflict. It just comes with any relationship. If you've been married for any number of years and you've never had a fight, well, God bless you, but I'm a little nervous that maybe something's being covered up, okay? Let's just be clear about that. In our, in our ministry here, uh, we have a, a premarital counseling uh, opportunity for, for couples to go through called Prepare Enrich. It's an inventory of about 170 questions that helps identify uh, gifts and graces that the couple may have uh, for, for their married life together and maybe some areas where there's some areas of growth that they need to pay attention to. One of the reports that comes to, to the pastor who's leading them through this inventory is something called idealistic distortion. It's not unusual for many couples to have a very high rating on idealistic distortion. After all, they're deeply, madly in love. What problems could we possibly ever have? And it's at that point that the pastor, and I, I do this with, with the couples I meet with, if, especially if they're high in that chart, is to consider some, rather frankly, some difficult situations. What if this happened? What if that happened? What if he did this? What if she said that? And suddenly we're brought down from the idealistic distortion to the reality and sometimes the messiness of what it means to be in love with someone. It doesn't mean you're, you, you're, your marriage is failing. It means that there's an issue that, that you need to pay attention to. It means it's important to care, to leave indifference behind. There's another barrier. It's the barrier of fear. Fear-filled churches tend to make decisions that cause the least amount of stress. If there's fear at work in the congregation, I can guarantee you they'll be like water flowing down a hill. They'll just look for the easiest path to make its way literally to, to the bottom. Uh, I remember when I first started at the church in Kansas City, the church I served before coming here, we decided it was time to publicly begin discussing uh, the full inclusion of the LGBTQ community within that congregation, and not just as full members, but also uh, in, the, in the pastorate, to welcome pastors uh, who were ordained, who also happened to be part of the LGBTQ community. It, it was received on the whole by the majority very well. But as you can imagine, there was a rather loud and vocal minority who wanted to be sure that I understood and the leaders of the church understood they weren't happy about this idea that we might be moving in this direction. Do you know what the number one reason for their fear and their worry was? Number one, we're going to lose money. 
People who don't like this are going to hold on their checkbooks. They're not going to make pledges. They're not going to give in the offering. They might even leave the church. We're going to lose money. You know what the number two reason was they were afraid of this? We're going to lose money. You know what number three was? Can you guess? Yeah, we're going to lose money. Here's the thing, though. That was a false idea. That really wasn't the issue. I remember one, one person coming and talking to me. And I'm, I'm grateful that he was honest, even though what he said was abhorrent. He said, let me be clear. Those people, I'm quoting, those people need to just be quiet and go away. I'm quoting again. The gays, he said, just need to be quiet. You see what he was describing? He was not describing unity of thought. He was describing uniformity. He had an idea of how everyone should act and walk and talk and look and think and act, even in their sexuality. And it was a certain narrow understanding of that. And anybody else who gets out of that, out of that line will just need to go away, just need to be quiet. That's fear. And it becomes a barrier to fully loving and including all of God's children. Now, let me, let me confess this morning, there have been too many times in my ministry when fear has controlled me and my actions. I'm, not, I'm rarely ever afraid in the pulpit. Nervous? I'm nervous every Sunday, three times on Sunday morning. Weddings, funerals, I'm always nervous. That nervousness doesn't necessarily mean fear. That just comes with the job. This is a, a very free pulpit here at First Community, one of the freest I've ever seen. And I'm thankful to this congregation for the freedom that, that all of your pastors have when they stand in the, in the pulpit delivering a word. No, my fear has based on what my perception might be, how I might be perceived by you, because I'm afraid you might not think I work hard enough, not think I might not do enough, get enough done. Work at it. Keep going after it. And what I've done is too many times pushed my family to second place. It's as though I say to my, my family, I've never used these words, but this is the message they've heard. I work for Jesus, and you just need to get, be calm and just talk to me later. I work for Jesus. I'm glad to know, however, I'm not alone in this. Philip Gully tells a story in his book, If God is Love, about a time he's a pastor, a Quaker pastor, he was at home working on a sermon on love and marriage when he got stuck. He got the sermon completely done, but he needed a good closing illustration, a good conclusion, something to really tie it together. And he was just stuck. He'd been sitting there for about an hour. He tried this idea, tried that idea. Nothing was really coming together. Uh, like I said, he was very frustrated. Then all of a sudden, the phone rang. He picked it up, a little bit of anger in his voice. Hello? It was his wife. She said, uh, could you pick our son up at, at the school? Uh, he did his call and said he's sick, and, and uh, yeah, I would love it if you could go pick him up and bring him home. Do you not know that I'm working on my sermon right now? Do you realize I've been working on this all week, and I'm stuck? I've got to get this done. I don't have time to pick him up. In a quiet voice, she said, okay, in the middle of cleaning the house, doing the laundry, including yours, and preparing dinner, I'll find some time, and I'll go pick him up. He said, she said all of that without any sarcasm in her voice. I'm not sure that's true, but I, that's, how, that's how he says in his book. Then he went back to his notes, opened up his laptop, saw the little cursor that was just blinking there, kind of taunting him. He read the last lines that, that he had written before he got stuck. Remember the sermons on love and marriage. We are to love our spouses 
as we love ourselves. We are to serve our spouses as though we are serving God's very self. He confesses in his book that his number one priority as a pastor is first to be gracious and loving to his family. I would suggest that the number one priority for anyone in this room is to be gracious and loving first at home. Bear with one another in love, Paul wrote. There's nothing you cannot take on if you will bear with one another through the power of love. But here's the thing. A pastor named John Ortberg helped me understand this. If we're going to choose love, if you're going to choose that path, it will be risky. It will be difficult. It may be troubling. I know that seems unusual, but stay with me. If you read through the Gospel of John, you'll find a couple of instances where Jesus' love is troubling for him. Soon after Lazarus, his friend, has died, Jesus makes his way to the home of Lazarus and Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha. The grief and death hang heavy in the air. John writes in his Gospel that when Jesus arrived there, he was deeply moved and troubled in his spirit, troubled by the presence of death and its reality. Later, on the night before he'll be executed, when Jesus is with his disciples in an upper room, he says to his disciples, my betrayer is at hand. John says that Jesus was deeply moved and troubled by the presence of Judas. It was his love for Lazarus and Mary and Martha that troubled him at the reality of death. It was his love for Judas that troubled him that his friend would betray him in his deepest moment of need. It's that love that troubled him and troubled us. But we know this. We know it. If you give your life to someone in love, if you give yourself to them in love, if you love someone greatly, there will be a time, there will be a day when grief will be real. If you are a parent who has loved your child, loved, 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 and they just keep you at a distance, never receiving or giving love back to you, you know how troubling it is. Or if you're a child who's deeply wanted your mother or your father to love you, to give you the love you need, you know how troubling it is. And yet, is there a better way to live? The finest way to live is with love at the center of our hearts, our souls, our strength. There's no better way to live then like that, to bear with one another in love. You know, the future of the church universal and frankly the future of First Community is, is not easy to discern. Sometimes I feel like I'm looking down the road and it's just filled with fog and, and, and the lights have gotten down and it's dark and who knows exactly what's going to happen next. We've already been, as the old hymn says, through many dangers, toils and snares and there's more coming. Who knows what it might be? And yet the great promise 
the great promise of our faith from the beginning of our sacred texts to the end to this moment even now is that we can handle anything that comes before us by bearing with one another in the name of love. Amen.